Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-477 of the Run Run Live podcast. Here we are, uh, the week after the 126th Boston Marathon, and I have no entertaining race report for you because I didn't run. But somehow the race managed to pull itself up and run on without me. They managed to get by without me. So in section one, I'm going to talk about this year's Boston Marathon. In section two, I'm going to talk about how to understand and leverage the fear of loss to achieve your goals. And in today's interview, I speak with triathlete and indie author Nicholas Sensbury-Smith. It's a great chat. I wanted to ask Nick how he managed to be a successful independent author and still manage to stay healthy. And it turns out, uh, yeah, he works his ass off. So I'm going to keep interviewing people until I find that one, that one person who spends three hours a day working and is highly successful. Doesn't work 24 hours a day to be successful. I know they're out there. Yeah, maybe that's magical thinking on my part. I've been working myself. I think that's the the real secret, right? To realize you're going to have to get up (laughs) and work every day until you can't work anymore. Uh, but to figure out how to get something out of it. So you're working on your own terms. Spring is springing up around here, up in New England. Trees are starting to bust out. The cherry tree in my front yard, my forsythia, they're all flowering. My blueberry bushes, my raspberries, everything's budding up. My chives wintered over from last year. And as a matter of fact, the chives, they have escaped like the mint into the woods. They've gone feral. They're out there competing with the poison ivy for world forest domination. And I feel pretty healthy. I'm back on a clean eating routine. I'm walking Ollie a mile a day in the trails. And I've got a pretty good fitness routine that I'll talk about a little bit in the outro. One advantage of not running the marathon last weekend is that I can start working in my yard without fear of ruining my race. So, you know, I can turn over my garden beds and rake a little bit. (laughs) because <laughs> the weather's nice. I'm contemplating spending some, well, some, if not all, the summer down on Cape Cod and my other house, now that I've chased the raccoon out. Uh, and so I told my wife that she can use my garden beds to plant her cut flowers. It's good to give the vegetables a rest every few years. 
I do have a fresh crop of my famous hybrid tomatoes for this year. I got uh, a good germination rate. 14 out of 15 seeds are going strong under the grow lights in my closet. It's a beautiful thing. So how are you doing? It looks like the pandemic is winding down. More like people just stopped worrying about it. But it did it help you think about your priorities? Maybe be kinder to yourself? Was it a, a reset for you? Like I said, I wanted to talk with Nick because he is a very successful independent author, and that's not easy. The new world of publishing is a bit of a double-edged sword. The internet removed the old gatekeepers, so now anyone who wants to can be a published author. They can do it. No one has to give you permission. But the other side of that cutting edge is that this creates a vast, noisy soup of mediocrity that is hard to stand out in. They freed the author's voices and simultaneously commoditized them. And this is true of all the artists in this new frame of reference. Artists are free to create. They're free and enabled to release their creations out into the world. From the garage bands to the dancers, everyone can take their shot these days. But it's still work. Especially if you define success as commercial success, which you don't have to, but if you do, it's now on you to create that success and differentiate from that throng. Now we have turned our our starving artists into hustlers. Like I said, it's a double-edged sword. And you might say that this artistic Darwinism is good for everyone. The cream floats to the top, and this is true. But the vast middle stays stuck. So in many ways, nothing has really changed. The gatekeepers are gone, but the algorithms are now the gatekeepers, and they're still deciding for us. I think at the end of the day, you need to work in your art because you are compelled to do it. It's answering the siren song, a longing within you that you don't have a choice over. The art completes you. The art compels you. And in this sense... There are fewer frustrated artists stuck in back offices and laundry rooms wishing their lives away. And I think that's a good thing. I'd say it's democratic, like the original internet evangelist used to say, but I think it's more chaotic and less deterministic, which suits me just as well. Anyhow, your assignment for the week is to go buy something from a struggling artist and leave a nice review. Karma is a river. And you need to inflate your raft and take it over the falls every once in a while. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. All right, so let's talk about Boston. Boston 2022. And even though I wasn't at the Boston Marathon this year as a participant, I was very much immersed in it. My social stream was full of pictures of smiling people taking pictures. Pictures of themselves in their Boston gear, mugging for photo ops at the finish line, capturing famous and near-famous alike in selfies. Boston was everywhere. The weather was perfect. We tucked a couple of cool, crisp spring clear days in between rainy windstorms for these participants. 
And this is how it works in New England. You're just as likely to get a fast-moving storm as you are to get the nice spring day. But the weather on Monday was a perfect hit right in that bullseye. And there's high odds against that. And the nice weather added to this generally celebratory atmosphere. It was good weather, not only for racing, but also for the throngs who were celebrating. Sunny and cool with just a little bit of wind. And I'm sure some of the locals thought it was too windy or was too warm or there was too much sun. You know, those runners from warmer places probably thought it was too cold or they were thrilled because it was cold enough to work hard without overheating. And I'm sure I would have found something to complain about, but it doesn't get much better. And the vibe, like the weather, was pretty good. It was sunny. People were genuinely happy and celebrating. And it felt a lot like 2014 when we took back the streets with that same joy. Our global running community took back Patriots Day from the pandemic. And Boston was a happy place. And I didn't go into the race on race day. I sat in my home office and I tracked people online. The photos continued to stream across my social apps all morning into the afternoon the next day and the following week. The obligatory photos of people laying out their kit on hotel room beds the night before. Nervous runners crowded into school buses making the trip out from Boston to Hopkinton. Smiling faces in the green athletic fields of Athletes Village, even some pictures from within the corrals at the start line. It was interesting to try and parse out so many different narratives I was watching. There were narratives of people racing. There were narratives of people celebrating. There were narratives, powerful narratives, of people running Boston after years of trials and setbacks. And it took them that long to get there. And now they were there and they were celebrating. Tracking the race from my office, I was really surprised at how quickly that elite race was over. It seemed like the blink of an eye compared to the epic struggles I remember from when I was out on the course. And according to the BAA, 25,314 athletes crossed the start line in Hopkinton. 24,918 athletes crossed the finish line on Boylston Street. At a 98.4% finish rate. That means somewhere we lost 396 people. (laughs) And I saw some of these stories in my feed after the race. People who knew they were having a bad day and decided to step off the course before they did any damage to themselves. I've been there, but, you know, I always finish. Just because by the time I was that bad, it was easier to finish than to try to find a ride back into town. And I quote from the official BAA press release, Evans Chibet from Kenya won his first Boston Marathon title in 2.06.51, the eighth fastest time in Boston Marathon history. Chibet avenged a DNF from the 2018 Boston Marathon. That was the really rainy year. Remember that with the freezing rain? His lone other attempt at the Hopkinton to Boston course. I finished that race. Chibet has completed three other Abbott World Marathon majors, London, Tokyo, Berlin. He is the real deal. And Chibet was followed across the line by Lawrence Chirono of Kenya in 207.21 and Benson Kipruto of Kenya in 207.27. These guys are machines. For the women, Paris, Jepchichir from Kenya, became the first athlete in history to have won the Boston 
New York City, and Olympic marathon titles. And she finished with a 2.21.01. Jep Chichir is the fifth Olympic marathon champion to win Boston. And this was her Boston Marathon debut. And today's race was the sixth closest finish in women's race history as Jep Chichir defeated Ababel Yeshena of Ethiopia by four seconds. So, uh, followed by Mary Nagugi of Kenya in 2.21.32. So, it was a great duel at the finish. The two leaders traded places several times in the final miles, and Paris surged and sprinted in to take it on Boylston Street. And I just can't imagine that, right? Imagine the athleticism necessary to sprint on Boylston Street. If my memory serves me, I was usually more concerned with staying conscious in that last quarter mile on Boylston Street. So she, again, is the real deal. And there were some D-list celebrities in the race this year, none of whom I would recognize if I tripped over them in the street. Uh, A NASCAR driver named Mark Kenseth put in a pretty good time, a 301. A soccer player named Ethan Zahn ran a 502. And some bachelor guy, Matt James, ran a 349. Uh, Another Zach Clark from The Bachelorette ran a 343. Wonder if they saw each other on the course. And Chris Nickick, the Dick and Rick Hoyt Award winner, espionery and first athlete with Down syndrome to complete an Ironman finished as well. And para-athlete and advocate Adrian Haslett finished with, uh, I think she was running with Shalane. They made a big, big deal out of that locally here. And that nurse in scrubs that I was telling you about last week, she finished with a 248. Yeah, so she's the real deal. Scrubs or not. Now, some of the people I follow on Instagram were there, sort of internet famous types, like I used to be. Um, I saw Angie Spencer from Marathon Training Academy. She had a good race. But it was strange. It was a strange form of voyeurism as I watched men and women who I sort of kind of know on social media run their races. Women who had battled through cancers and divorces. Men who had beaten other diseases. You know, strikingly, this seemed to be the year where many people's multi-year quest to run Boston culminated all all the stories of people who had missed out on previous years by seconds and had to dig deep and persevere. It's all very inspirational, but here I was watching from afar. Are there people who used to watch me the same way? I know I was on some people's minds. I got messages from people asking me what my number was this year so they could track me. I had family members tell me they missed having me to track on race day, and I had people chime in and say, hey, how did you do? So congratulations to everyone who did the work, who towed the line, who went ran their race, whether you were humbled or got your PR in the nice weather. Congratulations to you. Boston was a beautiful spring dream this year, and I'm glad to have been able to celebrate with everyone. And now for today's featured interview. All right, so we're live. So, Great. Nick, how are you doing today, man? Thanks for having me. It's been a long week. I was out in Grand Rapids earlier this week. Beautiful day out there, but uh, I think the travel's catching up with me. But it's good to be traveling yeah. again. It's good to be out shaking hands, pressing the flesh, seeing people again. So, yeah. yeah. I 
ended up looking you up because um, you you know this now, but you probably didn't know before. Is uh, I'm sort of an apocalypse guy. I write these apocalypse stories, um, and I have a, another podcast. And so every time I log into Facebook, I would get an ad for Hell Divers, like every single okay, time, yeah. right? As like <laughs> so, eventually I went, okay, okay, I'll buy one and I'll go check this author out, and that was you. And then I was stalking you a little bit on on your Facebook page, and it turns out you're a uh, you're a triathlete as well. So I was like, okay, I'll I'll get him on the show to talk. So why don't you introduce yourself? Give us the two hundred words so and who you are and what you do. Okay, I'm Nicholas Sansbury Smith. That's my full legal name. That's what the what I wanted to write under too, just because there's so many Nick Smiths out there. But uh, basically, I started. I worked for the state of Iowa for 10 years, worked for our Iowa Homeland Security Emergency Management. Uh, that gave me a, a background into um, writing what I do, which is basically apocalyptic themed. Um, during that time, I worked for the state. I was doing a lot of triathlons, uh, did a half Ironman, a full Ironman, some marathons, um, got really involved with that lifestyle, um, and then kind of transitioned into being a full-time writer, which didn't allow me to do uh, what I was doing before in terms of the racing, but, um, uh, still pretty active with biking and running, swimming when I can. Um, but, uh, we just had, my wife and I just had our first baby uh, nine months ago. So it's been kind of a crazy time. Um, still pumping out books. Uh, like Chris said, I'm, I've been working on my Helldiver series. Book 10 is the one I'm currently on. And yeah, I've got a couple other series out there, but that's kind of the, the ongoing one right now. Yeah, you're you're one of those prolific authors. I think that's the new model, right? With indie publishers or indie writers, is um, you gotta you gotta do series. You gotta do series of three or four or five or ten books, and you have to yeah. knock them out. I mean, unfortunately, yeah, I would say that is definitely the trend. Um, there's a few authors that are able to get you know one or two books out a year that might be just standalones, but that's very uncommon. Those publish those. Authors usually have traditional publishers with big budgets and have big fan bases. I'm thinking Andy Weir, who uh, he I have the same agent as Andy, so I I know a lot about his career, and he's one of those guys that can sustain that or one book every year or two years even. But for most of us, series based storylines are really the best way to make a living. Um, I've tried my hand at a few standalones, but they just don't sell as well, unfortunately. Right. If, so. if you're in it, if you're in it to make money, there's a kind of a formula now. I don't want to hear that, Nicholas, because I thought you had my dream lifestyle, which was, you know, roll out of bed in the morning, do a little yoga, <laughs> maybe meditate, write for a couple hours and then go ride my bike for four hours. That's not what you do. Yeah, that sounds pretty nice. Uh, that's not what I do. <laughs> that's, uh, usually I'm, I work for me personally. I'm, I'm six, seven days a week. Um, I, I write in the afternoons and edit in the mornings, you know, but there's so much more to this job, um, that, uh, there's marketing, especially when you're in the indie style, I'm kind of hybrid, which means I, I do both. I have traditional publishers too, but there's there's marketing, accounting. Um, I mean, you've seen my ads on Facebook. You've seen kind of my presence there. It requires a lot of outreach too, keeping you know up to date with your readers and the algorithms too. Just control our lives right now. So that's the biggest reason Amazon actually drives that. That fuels their model. So yeah. to be successful, you pretty much have to pump things out fast. Um, and yeah. that's that's really based off their own algorithms. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. I was reading yeah. the I was reading the uh what is it, the the Smash Words, um they do an annual survey and they and it's significant, right? If you're doing like you said, a standalone is zero and if you're doing a series it it's there's a bunch of things that move the needle significantly, like mm-hmm. right thirty to fifty percent in terms of volume. And and one of them is to have a series so you can kind of give away the first one or give away the or run specials and it opens up unlocks a lot of a lot of benefits for the author to do that. Yeah. And there's a lot of gaming, um, kind of gaming the system on Amazon I've seen, but basically that is the model. You, you release a couple books, you can give the first one away for free or discount it. Um, then you do a box set when the series is done and it just kind of, then you just keep going. I've been lucky because some of my series have really taken off. Like my Helldiver series has, found a pretty significant audience in audio and it just keeps going. And, 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 you know, I love writing that series, so I have no problem continuing to write those books, but like I have stopped other series where I felt burned out because that's not fair to the reader either. Like right. that just becomes a money grab. I've tried to really limit some, like I just, I just finished the book that came out last week was a third book in my E-Day trilogy. And I always wanted it to be a trilogy. This is, so I'm sticking to that, but <laughs> could keep going. And I just feel like this, there's, there's a liter, there's an ending to that series. And yeah. when I wrote it, I was like, okay, it's over now and yeah. I'm going to stick to it. But, um, you know, sometimes there's not but, necessarily an ending. My Helldiver series could keep going for a while. So we'll right, see. Right. <clears throat> but as you know, it's, it's like anything else, right? At some point the the reader disengages too, right? So I've yeah I've, definitely I've chased a couple of those you know zombie ebooks series on Amazon and gotten about three to five books in and gone yeah you know it's just not interesting anymore because it's just like running people running from one crisis to another crisis There's, they don't have a purpose anymore I guess is what I'm saying I, I see this and I write about this a lot how being an athlete helps you with your creative process right and yep. And uh, you find the same thing or when you're out, you know, you're stuck on something and you go out and have a run and have it pop into your head. Oh, for sure. And that's, that's how I first started writing. Um, When it was more of a hobby for me, I think I I didn't really know. I mean, obviously I knew how to write, but I didn't know like a lot of different plot techniques or character. I didn't know character development as well. And um, that was when I was training for my full Ironman. And I just remember being out on these long bike rides or swims or runs even, and just going over the storyline in my head and I'd come back to my desk and just like, was able to write my, my first book took me, Oh gosh, I think it was like 10 years to write. Um, and then my second book, which was part of that would really launch my career was called Orbs. I wrote that during my Ironman training and it took me six months. Um, and after that it was, it was a lot easier. Um, and I really, uh, attribute that to working, uh, to running, biking, swimming. Now, even that I'm more of a more experienced rider, you know, I've been doing this for eight years full time. And I find if I get stuck on a plot point, I go for a run, I go for a bike ride and I work through that pretty easily. It seems like come back, and I can just hit the keyboard. So there's definitely something about creativity um, when you're working out and, you know, how your brain works. I don't know the scientific reasoning behind it, but they do say that 
um, running is a rider's sport. I, I've heard that many times, and I can can relate to that. Yeah, As can you? It sounds like. Yeah, yeah, I I can, but you know, you always wonder whether it's just you or whether it's everybody, right? <laughs> I think it's quite a few. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, I don't know a whole lot of writers that are athletes, but the ones I do say the same thing. So the other thing I noticed is there's that flow state, right? You know, when you're you're in a swim and everything just comes together and it just doesn't feel uh-huh. like you're working anymore. You sort of transcend, and the same thing is true on a ride or, or yeah. a run. You know, you get to that point where you yep. you're just sort of watching yourself do it, and it's yeah, and it's you're it's an like autopilot. Easy, yeah. Um, I find you can you can get to the same state writing, right? So maybe there's some some parallels uh-huh. there. You know, yeah, that's where, interesting. I haven't thought where, about that. It's way, almost like but... you're watching yourself, right? You know, it's it's coming so easily that it's kind of entertaining to watch. Interesting uh, analogy there. I, I've never really thought of myself like that with writing, but I do get into the groove sometimes. And I always wonder what gets me there. Um, like there's certain times of the day that I'm more efficient. Um, I know that, but I, I can't really say why all of a sudden if I, I sit down and write a thousand words in 20 minutes, why I did, you know, whereas yeah. I struggle for hours sometimes to get that many words written and quality writing too. So I actually remember orbs. I read that when you published it way back when, I remember getting hit up oh, on wow. Kindle for that one too. So whatever you're doing with the Amazon algorithms, they're after me. They got me in their crosshairs. Uh, I figured out the marketing side of the business early on. Um, I mean, it's changed quite significantly, and I've definitely fallen behind on how things work on Amazon. But I've kept up enough where I'm able to, you know, do this for a living. And um, but it's it's a challenge now because it's really a pay-to-play system. Back then there wasn't there. I I didn't pay for ads. So like if you saw an ad for, for um, orbs, it would have been run by Amazon. They would have been promoting that book based off of my sales and they just were recommending it emails or whatever. But now like you really got to run ads on their platform. They've monetized it in a way that it it just would have blown me away eight years ago. I would have been like, how could anyone compete in this environment? Because a lot of authors are spending more than they're making. In fact, I've right. done that recently where I've I've spent more on a book than I've made, unfortunately. But yeah. it's because the advertising, there's just so many books out there now too. You're competing against millions of people. Back yeah. then, there wasn't that many, especially in the, apoc- the apocalyptic genre, which got really hot. And, yeah. you know, so, you know, you probably know a lot about this, so... No, no, it's good news, bad news, right? Because the, um, the good news yeah. is that anybody can sit down and write a book and publish it if they want to, right? So the gatekeepers have all been removed, right? The people who you had to convince that it was a good book have all been removed. That's the good news. Bad news is that you got a million mediocre (laughs) e-books that you're competing with, right? So so better, it's like, it's like, uh, it's like the uh, athletics, right? You got, it's, it's hard and it's a labor of love. It is. Yeah. And you know, one thing I'll say about my work is I was definitely at the lower mediocre range when I started. Like Orbs was, it was a fun book, but it wasn't, it wasn't great literature. You know, now yeah. I think I've really dedicated myself to trying to write things that 
um, you know, not, not to win awards, but just to make sure I'm putting out the best thing I can and to take yeah. my writing to the next level and to make sure I'm not regurgitating stories and like the characters aren't doing like what you were saying earlier, where you just go from one uh, chaotic scene to the next, like you got that's, and that's a huge yeah. challenge of writing a series is coming up with new stuff that will keep right. readers engaged. You're right. And, and like I said, I just, I just, I'm just about to finish um, Helldivers 2. So I noticed your progression between 1 and 2, right? And and that was one of my questions. Yeah, yeah. Did you have the whole plot line laid out? No, I, I actually, so it's, this is going to sound crazy, but I had I had meant Helldivers to be a standalone. That was going to be my yeah. Andy Weir, the Martian. Like, I wanted it to be a standalone. I wrote that ending where... I mean, I, I don't know if I'm if it's cool to give spoilers, but the main character is kind of floating in the sky. You don't know what's going to happen to him. And yeah. I was like, this is it. I sent my my agent sent it to all these publishers, and then the publisher he sold it to, he was like, no, nah, we want we want three. So I had yeah. to outline two more. Um, but that was it. That was supposed to be a trilogy when I signed that contract, and then the book did so well that they wanted two more. Then they wanted two more, and then yeah. now I'm at ten. But See, now that's fortunately tough, for me, now like, you got to make stuff up, right? You're like, okay, the natural story arc ended here. Now I got to, it's like rebooting a series on TV. Yeah. 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 I mean, and I've made mistakes as I've gone along because right now I'm working with um, a director and a special effects artist on the movie stuff. They've, it's been optioned multiple times and now I've, I've got a, another agreement with these guys and a different, different group. But at any rate, they're, they're have all the, they have all these ideas for characters and how it would be on the big screen. And it makes me realize like that I did make some mistakes while I was writing these books because, you know, when I killed off a certain character, that was a fan favorite. I wish I wouldn't have done it a certain way. Or if I, I wish I would have done it a different way that, yeah. you know, these guys were like, Hey, this would be cool. Like, what if you change this to, to make it like this? And so it's, it's kind of like one of those things where a series especially isn't linear unless you really sit down and focus on it. Like for example, right now I'm working on an outline for my next three books and like, I'm, I'm really mapping them out this time. Right. So I know where they're going and they will, they're definitely going to change when I write them, but um, it's not like hell divers where I did, I had ideas, but I didn't have, all the plot points or all the characters right. so. or at least or at least a skeleton or yeah yeah no no you're right so i think i i think it'd make a great movie but it would also make a great tv series because you have a place right so it could be episodic yep. in that place um, i'd love to see either or but i've just that's another thing about this business it's very difficult to get even with the streaming services out there now like there's just so many remakes of old movies and old tv shows that it's difficult to get new content um and for a series like helldivers it'd be tougher either because of how much it would take um how much budget it would take to bring it to to either format you know um just the special effects and stuff so yeah but yeah yeah unless you dumbed it down right and then it would suck yeah, you'd, uh, you'd be the sci-fi yeah. channel uh, with the rubber suits. Yeah, <laughs> which so, might uh, not be terrible, but uh, at the same time, it's like if you want to do, you want it done right. If you get the opportunity, so yeah, and I, we'll I bet see. that's a challenge for you because you have a lot of people coming to you saying, "Hey, let's do this, let's do that," and you have to as as enthusiastic as you are about your 
your creative content, you have to be able to say, no, this isn't right. And that's hard. It is, yeah, especially when there's money involved. But I'm fortunate in a situation where I've done okay enough where I can try to be picky about the projects outside of, you know, in other formats, not just with books, but like, you know, board games or whatever. Uh, yeah. Because you want it, you want your story to be told, you want your story to be transitioned into a different format in a way that makes sense. So, and, and oftentimes people will try to poach success. So, you know, might have some coming at you that they don't, they maybe haven't even read the books. Right. They just want to try to, you know, monetize it or capitalize on the success. So, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's, and all they're really one is the title and your audience. um, So, Given your your background here as as an athlete, have you worked any of that into the storyline? I mean, I haven't really seen any of it in the two you know the two or three books a year as I've read. Definitely in some action scenes, I think that I've taken some of when I've really felt like I pushed my body to the max. Like, right. how does that make me feel? You know how how does it? How does my body like? I guess the thing that I would say that I have really tried to implement in my writing is something I learned during Iron Man, and that is like we are so much more capable than what we think we are when it comes to um, running or whatever. You're just your body can do so much more than you. I think most people realize, right. and that's one thing that I've tried to use as, as kind of a theme in my books is a lot of the characters that are going through a lot of different challenges, whether it's physical or mental. Um, I've tried to, to use my own experiences, overcoming challenges and, and give the, and give certain characters that sort of mindset that they can do this, whatever it may be. And it, you know, there's probably a lot of cliches I could use about, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, stuff like that. But it is kind of true. I I never thought I could do an Ironman. And then I yeah. did. And right. I did it with recovering from major heart problems. Um, I had pericarditis, which is a virus in the heart. And it, it, it did a lot of damage to my heart. That was when I was like 22, 23. I can't remember exactly. And I came back from that and I wanted to do triathlons. My doctor finally was like, okay, go become an Ironman. And I did. But I never really realized when I signed up for one that that what it was going to take and what your body goes through to get there. Yeah. So tried to include some of that in my writing. I don't know. Um, yeah. But and that's. I think you you hit the nail on the head. Right is and that's probably some of the genesis of you taking on this this new career as well. Right because when you do something like an Ironman or a marathon, whatever it is, you open up a box where you're unconstrained and you're okay, what else can I do that I'm telling myself that I can't do? Yeah, that's a good point. And I think when I finished my Ironman, um, I was like, what's next? What else can I do? Like ultra marathons is what I was kind of had my eyes on. But then I got a publishing contract with Simon Schuster for that or the orb series. And I realized like, I got to pick one or the other. It's kind of like I was reading this interview about Elon Musk. He was, Either his either Tesla was going to die or um, his rocket company. What's it called? Can't even remember now. But his, his rocket company. Yeah, SpaceX. Right. So he had to pick. He said he had to pick one or the other. One was going to die if he didn't. But then then he kind of he said that um, instead of putting full attention to one, he kind of did both. He was able to find a way to do both. And that's kind of what I think I did with um, 
the Ironman lifestyle. I couldn't focus completely on that and become a full-time rider. So I, I did what I, the best thing I could do was working full-time as a rider was just to back off some of the Ironman stuff, but still do it. I guess yeah. trying to compare it to them, but I really shouldn't compare myself to Elon Musk anyways, <laughs> but it just reminded me of that, that kind of that interview that he, he was talking about, he had to make a choice. And sometimes the choice isn't necessarily to give something up entirely. It's just to find a, a flow where you're so like right now, for example, I, I still run and bike uh, probably five times a week, but it's nowhere near where I was at. Like not even a fraction for Ironman, right. you know? So, yeah. but I still can enjoy that and it can still keep me healthy and whatnot. Right. Right. Well, I think the other thing you learn from doing a big event like that is you learn how to create a plan and stick to it. Right. And yeah. I think that's a skill that you can use everywhere in life is create a plan and then execute it every day. Right. Yeah. That's so true. Yeah. And I think there's nothing like training for a marathon, um, as you know, or training for Ironman, if you really do it the right way and you stick to a plan or if you, you make a plan or you copy a plan or whatever, I kind of did a hybrid training plan where I modified it to what I could do and then stuck to it. And that really gave me a head start when I jumped into writing full time on being as efficient as possible. Like I, I can honestly say in the past eight years that I haven't taken like weeks off. Like I'll take a vacation with my family and whatnot to recover from, but I, I don't, I've always been diligent about working. And I think a huge reason for that is well, one, this job is kind of uncertain, but also just because of what I learned in training, um, that you can't let up. Like if you want to succeed and in, in, in especially in a business like this, because you're surrounded by sharks that are going to work just as hard, if not harder than you. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 And, and, and I think, but no matter what it is, even if you're in calm waters, consistency is always the most important thing. Right. So what you got any big plans for, uh, getting back, getting back and doing some, some competing? You know, I've thought about doing a half Ironman or something that I can manage training wise. So we'll see about that. But don't you have the core, the, the, the real Ironman right up there somewhere, core to something? Um, I'm in Iowa, but I did do core lane in Idaho. Idaho. That's what you're talking about. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the story. whole, yeah, that, yep. That's the full one I did. Okay. Um, and I did a half in Galveston, but yeah, I, Iowa doesn't have, I think we got a half. <clears throat> we just recently got a half, but the closest full would be Wisconsin, I believe. Um, so, but it's, it's fun to travel too. So I would definitely do a half somewhere, yeah. um, yeah. in the future. Yeah. Need a new bike though. <laughs> yeah. My Cervelo is on life support. Well, <laughs> you know, you're going to have to, write some more it's a you're on the you're yep. on the, the the treadmill of uh indie writer now um yep all right so uh give us your your links give us uh what people need to know to find you uh i spent a lot of time on facebook just nicholas sansbury smith um that's how to find me there uh and then my website is nicholas sansbury smith.com that's where all my books are located all the links there's a uh subscription button for my newsletter, which I send out about once a month, just with new releases, sales, stuff like that, merchandise. So that's really where I, I'm the most active. I don't do a whole lot of Twitter, or Instagram anymore, just basically Facebook and, and my newsletter. 
All right, man. Well, I'm like I said, I'm I'm reading my way through Hell Divers. So well, I, I appreciate that. I hope you like it. I think the main character X is someone that you'd probably be able to relate to, um, <laughs> just with the like that because that's who I would if I could say that I gave a character some of the stuff I learned from Iron Man, it'd be X. Um, yeah, he goes so, through a lot in those so, books. So you'll have to listen to my um, my Apocalypse podcast because my main character or one of my main characters is an ultra runner, and the other ones. Uh, awesome. Yeah, I'll check that well. out. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, that, that's that's I put, cool. Put a bunch of running scenes in there just because it's what I know. <laughs> right, what you know. All yeah, right. no, absolutely. That sounds like a fun story too. All right, man. Thanks for the time. Good luck with uh, your. Yeah, pursuits. thank you. All right. Cheers. All right. Thanks, Chris. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Using your fear, how to flip the script on our own natural fear of loss. So fear is a primal and powerful motivator. We are wired for fear by evolutionary forces. Fear is not rational. We think we're being rational beings, but we are not. We think the prospect of success or gain or love, that motivates us to live our best lives. And all those things are pretty good motivators, but they are not the strongest motivator. The most powerful motivator is fear. Yeah, and a powerful form of fear is the fear of loss. We are hardwired to be heavily motivated to take action to avoid losing something we think we own. And yes, there is science and studies behind this statement. It's called the endowment effect. We value something we have more than something we don't have. Of course, the marketers, the salespeople, the politicians, they know this, right? And they use it to manipulate you. Notice the screaming politicos are always on about someone wanting to take something away from you. Your freedom, your lifestyle, your money. It's all a calculated effort to motivate you to do something. Protest, donate, vote. Because they know you are far more likely to fight for something you own than some rosy future thing that you still have to work for. And this explains many of the sales and marketing actions that are targeted at you, that you're bombarded with. Why do you think free trials and test drives are effective? They know that if you feel like you own something, even a little bit, you will value it more and be more likely to pay to keep it. Before the free trial, it was someone else's. Now it's partly yours, part of your experience, part of your whole being. And we are betting you don't want to give that up. People are more motivated to avoid losses than to seek gains. Losing hurts more than winning feels good. And we see this manifest in people who hold on to shitty jobs or bad relationships because they don't want to lose them. There is a strong loss aversion in all of us. And this goes a long way to explain some of our irrational behavior and avoidance. We will shy away from something that has the potential to give us an outsized personal gain or achievement because there's a risk of loss. The fear of loss overshadows our decision-making. 
This is why detachment is so important. If you look at successful people, they have methodologies to override their fears, their fear of loss, their emotional amygdala, and they weigh that risk and reward with detachment. Detachment. It's a powerful tool that allows you to operate effectively in high-risk environments. But why am I telling you this? To depress the shit out of you? To tell you that the cards are stacked against you? Of course not. I'm telling you this so you can use this powerful fear of loss to your advantage. So how can you use this powerful motivational tool, this force, to get what you want? Well, it boils down to using fear of loss in the form of a penalty to penalize negative or unwanted behavior. There have been many studies, but one of the most cited is a study that was trying to motivate people to quit smoking. Any of you ex-smokers out there will realize how addictive smoking is and how hard it is to quit. Your logical mind can tell you it's killing you, but your addicted pleasure center drowns out that noise pretty easily. In the studies, they had smokers commit to paying fines if they smoked. And this made the calculation easier for the monkey brain to understand. You smoke, you lose. You lose money. And it worked better than other methods. And it wasn't perfect. Not even close. It had a 52% success rate. But with hardcore addicted smokers, that's pretty good. And in the book I'm working my way through called Indistractable, the author gives an example of how he forces himself to work out by hanging a $100 bill on his calendar with a lighter. And if he doesn't do the workout, he has to burn the $100 bill. This is such a motivator for him that he has never missed a workout and never had to burn that $100 bill. And indeed, we see there are a bunch of apps that allow you to do this exact same thing. You bet people you will work out, and if you don't, you lose your money. Um, I like that $100 and lighter scheme because it's very visual and immediate, right? So this is known as a price pact. You make a pact with someone, yourself or someone else, where if you do not do the thing, you pay the price. And this has many forms. You see people commit to writing a check to some awful, hated organization if they don't do what they say. It has to be something that really triggers that fear of loss and motivates you. This is not universal, though. All people are wired differently, and it may not work for you, or it may be different for you. You need to be able to draw that line between motivating yourself and bullying yourself, right? Remember, 48% of those smokers gave up the cash to keep smoking. So know yourself. Be kind to yourself. Cultivate the ability to fail and figure self stuff out and bounce back. So hacking the fear of loss, it's not a cure-all for all your problems. It's another tool in your bag for you to use where appropriate. And in general, I think as athletes, we already have enough self-motivation to tackle important goals. But this tip or this trick may help in that process. Give you that little juice that you need when you need it help you fine-tune your self-development. So in summary, keep in mind the powerful nature of the fear of loss. Use methods to mitigate that so you can operate with detachment as needed. And be aware that you can also flip it over and use it as a stick to positively influence sticky behavioral situations in yourself. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please.
Okay, my friends, we have written our way to the end of episode 4-477 of the Run, Run, Live podcast. I have not been running. Yes, I have not been running. Still. And the knee feels pretty good, actually. It's basically a, like a 1 on the scale of 1 to 10. Um, I, I can still feel it, so I'm going to stay off it. I've got a nice cadence going. I walk the dog every day about a mile, which takes about 20 minutes, but makes him happy. And Ollie is coming up on three years old. He's starting to be a bit more mellow. He's still a bit of a velociraptor, but he gives as many hugs as he does bites on average. I ride my bike three days a week. Tuesday and Thursday, I go out for a mountain bike ride in the woods. Sunday, I go out for a longer ride, and it's a a combination of road and rail trail. I'm trying to get some time in the seat and build up that fitness before I start doing anything too crazy. And it's also still pretty wet in the woods. And as much as I don't mind working, those deep mud holes can be a bit of a distraction. Uh, I'm trying to be purposeful (laughs) and get my balance and strength back before I get too aggressive. Uh, on On the off days, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm doing light core work. And uh, 30-minute yoga for cyclists that I really like. Uh, Less than an hour, all told. But again, consistency is the name of the game. Baby steps. Next week, I'm going to go out to Cincinnati and hang out and do the half marathon at the Flying Pig. I'm not worried about the run walking, the 13 miles. I'll just have to be careful and not to hurt my knee. Should be fun. We'll record something with the boys. So it's all good. We talked earlier about using the fear of loss and that process, that that price pact to change behavior. And I'll add one more method you can use to take you out. And we've talked about this before. It's self-image. If you end up in a position where your expected self-image is out of sync with your reality, it causes you to be unsettled and to take action to get back into alignment with that self-image. And the easy examples for me is when I start putting on too much weight and there's no avoiding that. The pants are tight. The scale says, uh, here's how much you weigh. Can't avoid it. And these are the facts and they run counter to my self-image. And they cause a discordance in me that drives me to start focusing on my diet and mindfully working to reestablish that other less lumpy me that aligns with my self-image. And the same with my fitness. It's, I suppose it's good news, bad news. You might say it's unhealthy to tie up your self-worth in your fitness. You know, maybe, but it also causes you to take corrective action when that fitness level is out of sync with those expectations of yourself. And that's what happens to me. And these are negative examples, although I would argue that they result in positive action. There is a positive version of the same phenomena, an aspirational version, the way this works is that you consciously start to associate yourself with a self-image of what you aspire to be, what you want to be. And this is where those affirmations and validations come into play. You can start describing yourself as the person you want to be. And if you are powerful enough about this, it can create that same motivation to take actions that will put you in sync with that aspirational self-image. Refer to yourself as a healthy eater or a fit person. You do that enough, and your brain will figure out a way to get you there. 
Try it, and I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry.